0: Hey, did you know the US federal government spends $2 billion per year cleaning up the most contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere? This is Daniel Hartz with Sustainability Matters Today, a podcast where I showcase sustainability experts and discover their journeys. The aim of these conversations is to share ideas from leaders in the field on the financial benefits of adopting eco-friendly methodologies. Can it really be cost-effective to go greener? Through these talks, we also discuss ways you as an individual can incorporate environmentally friendly practices into your daily life. In this episode, my guest is Jay Manning, partner at Cascadia Law Group, an environmental law firm based in Olympia, Washington, in the U.S. In addition to working as an environmental attorney, Jay was the chief of staff for Washington Governor Christine Gregoire from 2009 to 2011. He was the director of the Department of Ecology, where he helped clean up and restore the Puget Sound and passed a bill on water management. Recently, Jay helped create and now currently supports the Pacific Coast Collaborative, a partnership between the states of California, Oregon, Washington and British Columbia to reduce greenhouse gas emissions while spurring the economy. We discussed the economic opportunities governments have when they adopt environmentally friendly policies. We cover Jay's experience of working with Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger to make a positive impact on the environment. From there, Jay describes his involvement at COP21, where the Paris Agreement was signed. Jay believes we have the capabilities to reverse climate change right now and hopes we're able to take advantage of these advancements in technology. Let's jump in. I'm excited to be speaking with Jay Manning, joining us today from Olympia, Washington, in the U.S., Jay is a partner at Cascadia Law Group, a leading environmental law firm that focuses on areas such as climate change, energy, and water quality. Thank you for joining me, Jay. Very happy to join you. Great. And so, Jay, the purpose of this podcast is to ask sustainability experts like yourself about the importance of the work you're doing and to get your advice on how adopting greener policies and practices can actually be cost effective for governments, companies, and individuals. Um, So I'd like to ask about how you got started in this field, the landmark legal cases you've worked on, your current role, and suggestions for simple and sustainable things people listening to this podcast can do today to make a positive difference in the environment. How does that sound? That sounds great. Excellent. So first of all, you've had an extraordinary career working in many aspects of environmental policy and law i 'm um, looking forward to, to digging into the specifics of all of that, but before we do, um, can you tell me why you wanted to get into the sustainability field?
1: Well, I had a uh, set of parents who really enjoyed getting outdoors and we didn 't have a whole lot of money when I was a kid, so camping was our standard uh, summer, spring, and fall vacation and and so we'd get out together and enjoy the outdoors, and it just resonated with me right from the start. I loved it, and I still love it, and um, I I just had an affinity for the natural world and really would love to, I knew I wanted to do something in that field. I, I really liked life sciences. I wasn't particularly good at them, but I liked them. I thought they were very interesting and and i was in school as a as a grade schooler and junior high student when the the big environmental movement of the 70s sort of swept over us and i was aware of that and and i i just knew that that's the field i want to work in and i had a scary but ultimately helpful experience when i was in high school my friend and i went and toured the University of Washington's oceanography school all on our own. We didn't tell the school we were doing it We just wandered over there. We'd lived across the bay and and that we ended up in the student lounge in the basement And there was a student who was obviously struggling and he sized us up and asked with great contempt So who are you two and we told him and he said so are you are the two best math students in your high school And the friend I was with probably was one of the best math students in our high school. And I certainly wasn't. And I said, no. And he said, well, then you can forget it. You're never going to make it here. And I was crushed at the time. Um, But it got me thinking about, you're not that great at math. You're probably not going to be a marine biologist. How can you do this work? And and be successful, and mm. and I had thought about it. in the back of my mind. I thought about law school, and I wasn't even sure at the time if there was such a thing as environmental law. But but I thought maybe there is, and if there is, maybe that's how I can work in this field. Uh, yeah, I can
0: certainly relate to that. I'm I'm definitely not good at math uh, at all. So yeah, I can certainly understand wanting to do something in this kind of science related, but just not having sort of the the mathematical or scientific chops. Uh, was there a moment when when you realized specifically that you wanted to work promoting sustainability um it was something important to you or is it just something that kind of naturally you always knew or how did that work
1: well it's funny i um when i went off to undergraduate school i i remember filling out the form for what do you want to major in among many other questions and Mm. i was I was a runner at the time. I was ran track and cross country, and I loved it. And it was a big part of my life. I was running in college, and so I I was thinking I'll probably be a track coach and uh, a and teacher. And but I saw the box for pre law, and I thought, yeah, you know, I'll just check this box, and when it doesn't work out, I'll I'll switch back to what I'm really going to do, which is be a track coach and. And um, and it just kept working, you know, one step at a time. And and then, you know, I got into law school and I got into a law school, the University of Oregon, with a really good environmental program. And and I made it through law school barely, but I did. And um, and I they had it just got me completely fired up that, yes, indeed, there is something called environmental law and. And I was, and I took courses in that area, and it was super interesting. Every other area of law to me is absolutely stultifying, and um, I would, I could never do it. But this area of law I like, and I really enjoyed it. And 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 probably the the, the luckiest event in my entire professional career was when I, I I knew I was going to go to work for the Attorney General's Office in Washington State. So that's the mm-hmm. those are the attorneys that represent the state of Washington, and they have a group of lawyers that corresponds to all sort of the major areas of work that the state does, one of which is environmental. And I happened to luck into a position with the division that represented the Department of Ecology, which is sort of the EPA equivalent, Environmental Protection Agency equivalent at the state level. And it was it was a great fit right from the start. And I I, lo- I remember thinking, I, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. I would do this for free. Um, and it was, it was just really a great fit from the start. And I, I, uh, lucked into some big cases and projects that, that, um, allowed me to do some important things fairly early. And, and, uh, so that, that was a, that was one of the difference makers in my career that I got um, that position right out of law school.
0: Yeah, that's really impressive. Um, and I guess it was one of those things that just cemented it. And from then on, you just knew. Is, it, yeah. it. Very cool. And so if we fast forward a bit, if you're reading your bio, one of the most impressive things that stands out is that you were the chief of staff for Washington Governor Christine Gregoire from 2009 to 2011. Uh, and during that time, you also headed the natural resources and energy and climate subcabinets, uh, among some other ones. I'm curious to know, what were you able to accomplish there when you were heading those subcabinets and being the chief of staff?
1: Well, that was quite an experience to be the chief of staff from, from the beginning of my career from in 1983 to, um, 2005, I was a lawyer. I practiced law. It was environmental law, but I practiced law and, and, um, and then Chris Gregoire had been elected governor and I had worked with her in the attorney general's office. She had been my client at the department of ecology for a while and, um, and she appointed me to head up the state agency, the Department of Ecology. So I went from being one of their lawyers to being the head of the agency, and while she was governor. And and so that that four and a half years from 2005 to 2010 was um, was a was a great time. We got we got a bunch of important work done um, on climate, on Puget on restoring Puget Sound to good health. On air quality we it was a really had we had the we had the votes in the legislature and we were able to to pass a lot of important legislation and do a lot of important things and then I was thinking well what should I do next and and governor Gregoire asked me to be her chief of staff and Mm -hmm. so the chief of staff in in the state of Washington is you know, sort of like the governor's right-hand person. And in, you do a lot of things that the governor would do, but doesn't have time or is doing other things. And so it was a very powerful position. And I was, I was absolutely flabbergasted that I found myself there. Um, and for the first time in my life, I had everything the state does was within my purview and not just environmental by any means. And and it was really hard because I always pretty soon after I started with the attorney general's office, I always felt like I had a pretty good handle on the substance of what I'm doing. But when I got to chief of staff, uh, any given day, I could be working on um, on a criminal justice issue or an education issue or a health care issue. And those I hadn't worked on. And so I really felt like I. I had a, a, a very steep learning curve, um, and that was hard. It was a hard time, and, and the that was the recession. That was the Great Recession, the worst economic time in the United States since the Great Depression. So, unfortunately, um, it was a time, I mean, in some ways, unfortunately. Fortunately, Governor Gregoire was, was the governor at that very difficult time, and I think she handled it better than any governor that I'm aware of could have handled it. She she understood state government. She understood the budget. She understood revenue challenges and and was the right governor to be in that seat. And frankly, we spent 95% of our time in that my two years as chief of staff working on budget we unlike the federal government states can't borrow money and run a deficit you have to run a balanced budget by constitution at least washington does i think most states do and um if we'd had the option of borrowing money and running a deficit we would have but we didn't have that option so we had to we had to cut up you know something like 20 percent of the state's budget and that was a lot of people it was a lot of programs uh, I remember having to call time out in budget meetings because too many people were crying, and it was that bad oh, man. so it felt to me like we didn't accomplish much in terms of forward progress, but we got the state through one of the hardest times it's ever had, and we were we were the right people to be there at the time. The accomplishments, the positive accomplishments for my time in that in those roles was the previous four years when I was the director of the Department of Ecology. And there we made we made tremendous progress that's still reverberating across the state, I think, in terms, again, of cleaning up and restoring Puget Sound to good health. That's a huge issue here in Washington Mm -hmm. state. Climate that we we just sort of started into working on climate change when I was the director, and then we we passed a bill having to do with water and how water is managed and how water is allocated to users, and and I didn't think that I didn't think that piece of legislation was going to be that significant, but it has turned it has turned out to be the most significant of everything that we did, and it has to- really changed. In, in some basins where, there, where water was characterized by litigation, antagonism, disagreements. And we've, we've changed those basins, and we now have the environmental community and our Native American tribes and our farmers working together on, on how to manage water so that everybody gets what they need. And if, we do, if, there's, if it's a drought year, we all sort of suffer together. Mm. It's It's been an amazing
0: transformation and, and something I'm really proud of. Yeah, I'm sure it's, it must be amazing to to have work that you still, you know, you look back and uh, you know that you were a key component of it and a key reason why it, it's there and, and people are still benefiting from it. Yeah, and
1: it is amazing. And it surprises me just about every day that that I've, I've been able to have this kind of an impact. And I do want to say to your listeners that, that there's nothing special about me. I grew up a poor kid in a, a household where we didn't have much, but my parents really stressed the importance of education and demonstrated every day the importance of work. We learned those lessons, and, you know, I'm moderately intelligent, but moderate is the right word I'm not brilliant but i know how to work and i know how to put a strategy together and i know how to work with people mm-hmm. um and and I, I if i can do it you know if i can have the impact that i've had then a lot of people can do it and i've been lucky luck has played a big part in how it has played out but if if i tell i meet with young people looking at, you know having this conversation what what should i do for my career? I want to work in, in the environmental field. What should I do? And what my main piece of advice is, if you really want to work in this field, then don't let somebody talk you out of it because they'll try. They'll tell you that there's not much money. There's not a lot of jobs. Well, that neither of those is true. There, You can make a, an honest living and you can be successful and you can make a difference if you really are determined to do so. And And I think people who... Who who end up you know falling away and doing something else? Um, that's I, I I regret that. I wish more people would push their way into this field and have uh, have a big impact because because
0: if I can do it, it, really probably anybody can do it. Yeah, amen to that. I that's very encouraging, and I think it's very true. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, not to go too off topic, but um, you know, in terms of financial opportunities in um, in sustainability or in environmentalism I was listening to a uh, podcast earlier today uh, where someone was saying that California is looking to to run on 100% renewable energy by 2045 and so if you think um, the entire state needs to go 100% renewable what is the infrastructure that needs to be put in place in order for that to happen and and that's jobs all of that is jobs that's that's Uh, companies, those are opportunities, Uh, you know, and I think as people are becoming more and more aware of the importance of becoming sustainable and, uh, you know, this concept of drawdown and and the negative effects of climate change and how important it is that we reverse that, I think businesses will start to come up and um, there's going to be plenty of financial opportunities.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more. I remember talking to a big audience back in 2007, I think, about climate. Climate was for for a state to do something about climate change. That was a pretty new concept at the time. And we were starting to push our way into that. And my argument was, you know, the impact of climate change, unabated, unmitigated, will be so disruptive. I mean, disruptive in every way. People are going to die. Ecosystems are going to suffer. Economies are going to suffer. And on the other hand, if we get out ahead of this and we start the transformation to a a zero carbon economy, and we and and we're a leader, there there's no telling how big that economic opportunity is. It's in it's trillions and trillions of dollars. And at the time, it felt very doable. It felt very logical. It felt like we were going to roll forward and make that kind of progress. Unfortunately, um, the planet hasn't hasn't made that kind of progress and neither has Washington state and and uh, we we have a lot more to do climate yeah. is um, is the big issue out there there's only one issue bigger in my mind than than climate change and that is really the underlying cause of climate change and all the other environmental problems that we have and it goes right to the heart of your podcast that it's about sustainability, that if we practice we as a species and we as a country, we as a state, as a city, as a household, as an individual, if we lived our life and made our decisions and sustainability was right in front of us and always the sort of North Star for our decision making um we wouldn't we wouldn't even be here we wouldn't be in a place where climate change is threatening us the way it is and and so that to me is the is the the big you know trillion dollar question is can human beings make that transition to sustainability and and I think your point earlier about economic opportunity that comes with sustainability um I, I think that that's critically important that people recognize that that opportunity is real and the smart folks are going to go out there and grab onto it and the laggards are going to get left behind. And yeah. the current administration, the Trump administration in the U S is going to put us in a position of trying to put us in a position of, of being the big loser in this global contest by putting us into this, you know, pro fossil fuel position pretty much all by ourselves. and, and everybody else is going to start making this transition and is already started. We on the West Coast of the United States, we have completely rejected the Trump administration model, and we are working our way towards a zero-carbon economy. And all indications so far are that there is absolutely nothing inconsistent between a robust economy and a zero-carbon economy, I think those two go hand in hand, and in the long term, they certainly are are necessary to each other. And uh, so I'm proud of what we're doing here on the West Coast. I'm horrified at our federal government, and I'm really looking forward to wishing them bon voyage and, and get them
0: out of office, because what they're doing is, is really a travesty. Yeah, that's something that, that I've been thinking about as well, and I think it dovetails very nicely into um, what you're currently working on, which is um, the Pacific Coast Collaborative. And it's something that you helped launch and you're now supporting on, and or supporting rather, and that brings together uh, the governors of California, Oregon, and Washington, as well as the premier of British Columbia in Canada, to continue to grow the economies of these states and regions while simultaneously protecting the environment. And I guess the point of the PCC, Pacific Coast Collaborative, is the fact that they are not mutually exclusive. But I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, how do you grow an economy while also protecting the environment?
1: Well, I think um, I, I, I'm glad you brought up the PCC. It's something that I've been part of since it was created in 2008 when I was the head of the environmental agency in Washington. And, and then when I left the state government in 2011 and, and went into private practice, um, I I was hired to be part of the support team for the PCC, as you mentioned. And I've been doing that from 2011 till till up, right up to today. And, you know, I was there when it was formed and I wasn't very convinced that it was going to be a big deal, that it was going to have sort of a political announcement and not much of substance would happen. But, but at the time Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California and a guy named David Campbell was the premier of British Columbia. And, is, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a Republican. Campbell was uh, the part of, of the, the Conservative Party, which is essentially the Republicans for Canada. And But both of them were big climate hawks. Both of them believed that climate was a huge problem and we needed to make, started to get, you know, reduce CO2 emissions quickly. And the two of them really hit it off and they were competitive with each other. And they started, under the guise of the PCC, advancing climate policies in both of their jurisdictions at a breakneck clip and in a really serious way. And Oregon and Washington have always struggled to keep up with those two. Um, And that really put some substance into the PCC in a way that surprised me. And then when I got out of the governor's office and started working with the PCC, um we've had we've we have survived now a number of new governors coming in and and each of the governors that has come in and premiers have been very supportive of the PCC and really want to continue to show as you say the premise here is you can reduce carbon emissions you can stabilize the climate and you can grow your economy and there is nothing inconsistent about those those uh, those goals and the, the facts speak for themselves. That in combination, those, those um, four jurisdictions have the fifth biggest economy in the world. And the growth, the economic growth rate, the unemployment rates, the all of the sort of most important indicators of a healthy economy show that this West Coast region has outperformed the rest of the United States by a margin um, for for the last decade, so as we have been doing things like putting a price on carbon emissions and requiring renewables, like you say, 100% clean. Washington just passed the very same bill, 100% clean in Washington. Um, Oregon's going to pass the most likely pass the same bill this session, um, and BC already has that policy in place. So so we will, I think, well before 2045 we will have all electricity generation in on the west coast will be renewable or carbon, or otherwise carbon free and and it's not going to it's not going to crater our economy it's going to create all sorts of opportunities to to get into the renewables business and we're going to we're going to need the same amount of power although hopefully we'll be very careful with our conservation investments Um, but we just are going to get it from a different source and a source that doesn't have CO2 emissions associated with it, doesn't have conventional air pollutants associated with it and is renewable indefinitely. And it's, it's what, if, if we lived by a uh, the notion of sustainability was our, our North star on all decision-making, this would have happened a long time ago. And the, the, Fossil fuel companies are powerful and, and skillful, and they are going to do everything they can possibly do to make sure we burn every molecule of fossil fuel that currently exists on the planet, and then they'll support going to renewables. Their ad campaigns are bald-faced lies when they describe themselves interested in renewables. They're not. Well, they are, but they're only interested in renewables once they burn all the fossil fuels and we simply cannot do that We have to leave almost all of the fossil fuels that are currently in the ground we have to leave them there forever and 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 that's the oil companies that's the last thing they want and it's time for the the people on this planet and the people in our country and the people in Washington State to say, you know what?" Oil companies don't run the world. We do. And we are going to leave those fossils in the ground. We're going to move to a low and then no carbon economy.
0: And we're going to do just fine economically. Yeah, I think that's very important. And I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, uh, as part of the PCC, just going back to this point, you uh, had the opportunity to go to COP21, uh, the UN climate talks in 2015, uh, on behalf of the TCC. And so for for anyone who may not know, COP21 is the conference that negotiated the Paris Agreement. So first of all, just as a baseline, could you please outline what the Paris Agreement was designed or is designed to achieve?
1: Yes. So the Paris Agreement is the, the most important international agreement by which virtually every country in the world has agreed to Limit their own the carbon emissions that occur within their country carbon and other other greenhouse gas emissions um, To a point that we will limit warming on the planet to at, at most two degrees But we do have a goal of keeping it at 1.5. So so that's the goal is let's limit warming to 1.5 degrees and and, uh, and we're, you know, everybody who signed up to that is working at it at, you know, some more serious than others. There are some that aren't making as much progress as we would want. And, and the overall progress, the aggregated progress is not what we want. We have to accelerate this process in, in every country, even the best, even the, Scandinavian countries, even France, mm-hmm. and even um, the West Coast states in the United States and British Columbia, we all have to do better. We all have to accelerate our decarbonization effort. Um, and then there are some governments, like the United States, the, the current administration, that decided to pull out of the of the Paris Agreement, and just a terribly embarrassing. Decision by this administration, it, it puts us. I mean, we are alone in the world. We are the only country in the world that is not committed to the Paris Agreement, and that, to me, I mean, that alone. There's so many reasons that this administration should be shown the door, but that alone is a is a really big one.
0: Right. It's interesting that the U.S. is literally the only one uh, that has decided to make that. Every other country has agreed um, to at least. Be a part of it. I guess my question is um, also, you know, do you believe that this agreement can actually move the needle in how countries approach climate change and curbing carbon emissions and just other greenhouse gas emissions?
1: Yeah, I, I do believe it. I think it has to be more rigorous than it is right now. The so that was what what that was 2014. That was it was signed 2015, I believe. 2015, um, we have not made the kind of progress that we need to make so far, but, but I think a global agreement that has the, the, this is the destination. We're going to limit warming to 1.5 degrees and, and, and we're into implementation now. It it doesn't surprise me. This is a big transition is to move from fossil fuels to, and to a renewables based, um, uh, energy system that 's a big change and it 's when we have opposition so we have to stick with this agreement we have to beef it up we have to there this there's a there's a cop every year a cop is a conference of the parties from the u n and this year 's cop is in santiago chile and and i i'm hope to be there and i 'm hoping that the international negotiators from all of these countries, except us, um, will, will beef up the agreement. They have the ability to do that every year and to monitor results and then beef up the agreement to make it stronger and more robust and more effective. And that's exactly what they'll do in Santiago this year.
0: I certainly hope so. And, and when you go to these um, conferences, what exactly is your involvement there? Well, I'm I'm not one of the international negotiators, so I'm not
1: in that room. Those are folks who work for, you know, the work for the State Department for their respective countries. But there are lots of other folks at COPS who are not international negotiators. And the reason I would be there is typically we have a collection of our governors and premier. Maybe not all of them. I think they were all in Paris, but I don't think we've had all of them at any of the others. But, a, but several of them come, and, and the PCC in 2016 started working in partnership with the cities of Vancouver, BC, Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and then Oakland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles in California, and some of those mayors will come too, so my hope is, and we're working on this right now, is we will have a number of opportunities to talk about the work that the PCC is doing and encourage other regions like us like the Pacific Coast Collaborative to step forward and be more aggressive than their national government can be and there are regions like the PCC in Europe that are organized as a region and we what we want to show is first of all substantively this is these are some examples of what we're doing and you can do this too and For example, right now we're engaged in a really impressive and exciting effort to reduce the generation of food waste. And food waste is is both the edible and inedible portion of our food that ends up going to a landfill, and it produces methane, which is a greenhouse gas far more powerful than CO2. And so if you can reduce the amount of wasted food that you generate, and the best thing to do with food is get it to hungry people. And we have plenty of people who are hungry. Um, and so we're, we're trying, to, we, we've adopted a PCC West Coast regional goal of reducing food waste by 50% by 2030. And we are moving, we're starting the implementation of the work to achieve that reduction. It'll be a tremendous greenhouse gas reduction if we are successful, and we will be. But that's an example of something that we I hope that the governors and the mayors are at the cop and talk about this food waste project. It's just one example of working regionally to have
0: more of an impact than it's an individual state could have by itself. Yeah. So it's almost like you're you're there to um, be an example and and lead the way and show others and encourage others. It, it sounds like it's basically a, a place to to discuss and share ideas and encourage each other it really is i I, first
1: time i went to a cop i was totally overwhelmed by the number of people the um the diversity of those people they are literally from every planet on the globe and many of them wear sort of their local um garb and clothing yeah so the diversity of the of the people themselves and what they're wearing and what, you know, the language they're speaking is really, I had never seen anything like that. I'd never, never been to a big international event like that. And then the energy level of people who are in attendance is, especially in Paris was, it was electric. You'd walk in and just feel the energy running through the building and uh And it was you know, we were in Paris and one of the world's great cities, and they reached agreement it was it was so exciting to be part of that and then um, you know, contrast that with the cop the following uh, two years later, maybe it was just the next next year in uh, Marrakesh, in Morocco, and I was there, and I was giving a speech the morning that the American election results came out, and I was going to talk about. The work that I did talk about the work that we are doing on the West Coast on ocean acidification, which is a it is a an acidifying of the water in the oceans. And it's from too much CO2 in the atmosphere. So it's the very problem that's causing global warming a a portion of that CO2 dissolves into the oceans and it's turning the world's oceans more acidic. And even a small change in acidity has tremendous potential impact and actual impact on especially shellfish. And so I was there talking about that. and, And but people, you know, they weren't really hearing me. They really wanted to know what does this election mean for the United States and climate and participation in the COP and commitment to the Paris Agreement? And I didn't know at the time, I, I knew it wasn't good. I didn't know how bad it was going to be. And so the feeling in Marrakesh was decidedly different than it was in Paris. And then fast forward a year to Bonn, Germany, last year's COP, and I was there too. And people had clearly had gotten over the election of the Trump administration. And were like, you know, they'll do what they'll do, but we're moving forward. The rest of the globe is moving forward and making progress and leaving us behind and it's a sad situation and i only hope that the american people decide this was a bad experiment and we're moving on in 2020 so we can get back onto the onto the train with the rest of the world and and make this transition now again no even even it's not just us everybody has to do better the trajectories we're on right now are not satisfactory we have to be more aggressive. We have to be more effective and we have to commit to leaving just about all the fossil fuels that are still in the ground. We're going to have to leave it there. And instead of fracking out a bunch of new oil, gas, um, we have to shift to renewables. And here on the West coast, we just Oregon and Washington just joined BC and California in adopting exactly that policy and by 2030, I think the use of uh, fossil fuels for uh, for generating electricity in in on the west coast will be
0: it'll be very rare, mm. and in some places it won't be happening happening at all. Yeah, let's hope uh, let's hope it is indeed 2030, and hopefully even sooner. If we rewind a little bit in your career, a couple of your big wins as an, an environmental lawyer were. Uh, finalizing the Hanford Tri-Party Agreement um, to clean up the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington, um, and this is a notable site because it's where plutonium was created for the first ever nuclear bomb, as well as the bomb detonated uh, over Nagasaki. And another big win for you was also winning uh, the important Clean Water Act, which I believe you were mentioning at the beginning, um, and that was a case that you were actually uh, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And that ruled that states could regulate their own hydroelectric projects. Um, so in terms of these kind of big cases, um, would you say it's more cost effective? And, you know, if we're looking at it from a financial standpoint, uh, because I guess, you, you know, the environment, I think that that may be one of the issues that for some people is that the environment sounds a little fuzzy. There's you know, that whole idea that we were talking about earlier that there's no financial gain from it. Um, but would you say it's more cost effective in general for the taxpayer if the government puts policies in place um, in advance in terms of, you know, cleaning up nuclear waste or getting these kind of Clean Water Act cases where you can actually benefit farmers and uh, local populations? You know, I, I guess my question is, what is the financial benefit of putting those things in place? Yeah, the that's a really good question.
1: And It is just so abundantly clear from the work that I've done over the years and anybody who's done this work, you would say, if you can prevent the creation of an environmental problem in the first instance, that is so much cheaper and easier to do than trying to fix it once you've created the problem. And this plays out over and over and over again. Um, With Hanford, talk about a fascinating history. If people want to know about Hanford and and know about the history there, I highly recommend a book called The The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. It's won the Pulitzer Prize. It's fantastic, dense book, uh, historical. Uh, It's not a novel. It's it's a, a recounting of the very earliest thoughts about creating nuclear power and nuclear weapons, and it traces that forward to the tests in New Mexico right before we dropped the bombs on Japan, and Hanford plays a central role in that. At the time, to, to, to create a nuclear weapon, you have to have either enriched uranium or plutonium, neither of which exist in nature. The only way those elements are created is um, by running a nuclear reactor. And in the core of a nuclear reactor, there are particles flying around and with high energy and creating new uh, elements in the case of plutonium, a new new element altogether that doesn't exist in nature or enriched uranium, which is an isotope of uranium that doesn't exist in nature. You have to have one of those two plutoniums better for a nuclear weapon. So FDR decided in 1942, we're going to build a nuclear weapon. And they, they grabbed Enrico Fermi, who is an Italian physicist at University of Chicago, and the only guy in the world that had caused a, a chain reaction um, when you actually what happens in, a, in the core of a nuclear reactor. You, you get this continuous chain of physical reactions that, that produces energy and he had he had done that under the bleachers at the football field at university of chicago for 13 seconds that was the only time it had happened on the planet and they grabbed him and sent him to hanford and said you need to build a nuclear reactor and he did in 13 months and it worked and that's one of the most amazing technical engineering feats to occur maybe maybe the most ever on our planet. And we didn't have computers. We didn't have calculators. They did it with slide rules. And and then Hanford was the place where we created plutonium and and enriched uranium for the next 45 years. And it sits on the banks of the Columbia River in central Washington state. And when I was in the AG's office, somebody said, yeah, so we're going to enter into these negotiations with the US Department of Energy that owns and operates Hanford to clean the site up. And I happened to be there. You know, I was in the office that day and they said, hey, you want to work on this? And I said, OK, I've never heard of it, but yeah, I'll work on it. And uh, spent the next three years of my life negotiating the cleanup agreement between the federal government and the state government. Very difficult negotiations, super antagonism between the two levels of government. Um, usdoe and its its uh predecessor they were used to being able to do exactly what they wanted to do with virtually no oversight and they didn't like us saying that this is what you're going to do now because we are the regulator and we are we are going to regulate you and we're going to clean this site up and we finally got to an agreement um governor gregoire was the head of the department of ecology at the time and she was the difference maker she was the it was because of her that we were able to reach agreement. She's a masterful negotiator. And we got this agreement in place in 1989. And we have been spending about, the U.S. government has been spending about $2 billion per year at Hanford ever since. Wow. $2 billion, not million, billion. It's the most contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere. The The contaminants are absolutely unique in that they are highly dangerous, toxic. Um, You get one gram, I mean, one molecule of plutonium in your lungs and it'll kill you. Um, And and it has a half-life of something like 250,000 years, which means in 250,000 years, it will be half as radioactive as it is now, still incredibly dangerous, but half as radioactive as it is now. So that what that's 250 times our re- our recorded. No, it's more than a recorded history. I mean, it's it's so much. It's so long, and and for us to be able to deal with things that are going to be da- dangerous and and toxic for that period of time it's sort of beyond us. But it was the war, and the war mattered more than anything else. And nobody thought much about yeah, you know, this process produces millions of gallons of contaminated liquids with high, high content of plutonium and uranium and other, other um, radio, radio, uh, isotopes and solvents and metals. And it, it's, it's basically um, all over that site. And so that's why we're spending $2 billion a year to clean it up. And we have a long way to go. And, yes, if somebody had said, you know what, we we can't just dump this stuff on the ground. We're going to have to contain it somehow. Um, that would it would have been expensive. It would have slowed them down, but it would have saved a whole bunch of money in the long run. And that 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 Hanford scenario plays itself out at every Superfund site that's out there. It plays itself out in a polluted river. Once you get a river to the point that it is polluted and it's beyond water quality standards, it's so much harder to bring it back than it is to keep it clean in the first instance. And that problem has just played itself out over and over again for human beings, for us here in Washington, for the United States. And, 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 you know, you, sustainability precepts would teach you that you, you don't do that. You don't make the decision that's going to allow the river to become polluted in the first instance you take you make decisions that will not allow that to happen because in the long run it's going to save you money it's going to save everybody money taxpayers businesses anybody who is in the vicinity of that river certainly anybody who's dependent on that river for you know for for eating or for a livelihood um so so it's it's a very good point and a big problem for humans that we're just not wired up very well to be to, to to behave in a sustainable fashion. We are wired up to worry about the you know the saber toothed tiger that is lurking outside of our cave, and that's the immediate problem. That we're actually pretty good at dealing with immediate problems, especially immediate threats. Um, but the longer term threats, the ones that not going to get you today, but it's going to get you next week. You know, we just then the farther out it is, the worse we are at it. And it is it could prove to be our undoing. I mean, it really could. That's the question to me is, will we figure out this sustainability challenge before it destroys us? And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, when we were when we didn't have the impact that we have now, it seems more likely that we could figure it out. But when you have climate change bearing down on us, and you have ocean acidification and ocean warming bearing down on us, it, it is—it's um, something that keeps me awake at night, thinking about how how do we get onto a more sustainable path? And and I I just honestly sitting here today, I don't know
0: how this is going to come out. Would you say you're optimistic about it? No. Fair enough. If you do look at it, it seems like there is some positive movement forward. But I guess when you take a step back and look at it from a bigger picture, there's so much going on that little tiny efforts that are just starting to happen. Yeah, it's the tiniest drop uh, in an acidic ocean.
1: But I, I say I'm not optimistic and I'm not optimistic, but I absolutely believe we can do it if we choose to. I just don't know that we will make the right decisions, but if we decided as a species, as a country, as a state, that we are we are going to move to a a, you know, you can't do it overnight. We're gonna move to a truly sustainable approach to to light living here on this planet, it, it it's entirely doable. It is absolutely, we we could do it. We know how to do it right now. Um, The question is, do we have the leadership, the political will, the demand from the people? Um, and, And I'm not one to sort of put this all on lack of leadership. I think we have had a lack of leadership. But at some point, the people have to stand up and say, we demand this. We demand that we make these changes. And if you as a politician. You're not on board with that, then we'll show you the door and we'll find people who are on board with that. Um, and I don't think that's happened. I don't think the citizenry as a whole, I mean, right now with the Trump administration, this all out war on on the environmental regulatory system, there's never been anything remotely like this that's happened in our history. And And I would think if you you had told me that they would be doing the things that they're doing right now, I would have said the people will never stand for that. The voters will, there will be a roar of, of this is unacceptable and you have to stop. And that hasn't happened. And that's why I'm not optimistic. If that roar happened, if people here said, you know what? We may have elected you for a number of reasons, but dismantling our environmental protection system is not one of them. I'd feel a whole lot better
0: about our chances if people listening to this podcast could do one thing. Would you, in that case, say that really standing up for for the environment and basically demanding that politicians make a change, that companies make a change, and I guess you can do that by voting uh, and by voting with your with your dollar by showing what it is that you want.
1: Yeah. That's that'd be uh, that would be one big thing and and I it's not that wouldn't be hard. I think that's an easy thing to do. You can clearly you can vote for candidates who care about the environment who are committed. You can work against and that can just be make a phone call, send a letter, send send an email to the to the envir- federal environmental protection agency, to the Department of Interior and say well, what you're doing is not acceptable. I do not support it. I mean, that that makes a difference. Mm. You can talk to your own elected senators or or House of Representative members and say the same thing, that this is unacceptable to me, and that makes a difference. Um, you can certainly do things in how you live your life. I mean, you mentioned where do you spend your money? Um, where Who do you buy from? And I think... You know, there are companies like Patagonia, like REI, that are absolutely committed and outstanding citizens on the environment um, that should everybody who cares about the environment should shop there. Um, You know, Amazon, they have they have a ways to go and they're working on it. They're not anti environment. They're not anti sustainability, but they're not where they need to be either, in my opinion. I think they're a great example of a company that would be responsive to customer demands for an increased level of sustainability. And they're working on it. They are trying to get there. But having some, some more feedback from customers saying that that's important to me, that would be that's a that would be an important action that anybody could take. Um, you know, then there's the obvious things: don't buy a big gas-guzzling SUV or pickup. Um, buy a car that gets good mileage and save some money. And I know not everybody can do that, but there's way more SUVs and pickups on the road than there are people that have to have them. Um, And there's, you know, insulate your home, um, eat local. There's, there's a, 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 you know, look up sustainability on the internet. and It'll give you more things that you can keep than you can keep in your head that you could change in your own life that aren't hard, that are easy to do, that will save you money, that will make your life better, and uh, and do those things. But we also need to – this, this current administration, is, is this train wreck of an administration has got to be shown the door.
0: Well, it sounds like we, have, uh, we all have a role to play, and hopefully we can all pitch in and, and do what we, what we need to do uh, to, make, to make those changes happen. Uh, just as we have a um, couple minutes left, you mentioned one really interesting book um, about making of um, atomic bombs. Uh, do you have any other book recommendations that either inspire you or that are great for learning more about environmental policy or how we can make a change? I do, actually. The other one
1: I would recommend is a book called Project Drawdown. And it is uh, it is a sort of a primer on here's how we can, we can beat climate change. Here are the actions that we can take at a societal level, at a government level, and as an individual level. It's optimistic. It is an optimistic book. It, it, the, the authors truly believe that this can be done, and it, it will be done. It's fascinating to read, to see how things you don't really think about Contribute to um, to emissions that cause climate change, and and there are things they recommend that aren't obvious um, that have quite a, quite a significant impact in in terms of carbon emissions. It's well written. It's optimistic. It's beautiful. The photographs are beautiful. So that's the other one I would highly recommend. I, I think people would would come away from it feeling like hey, we can do this, I, I, and feel and, and, and then know, here are some things I can do that will make a difference.
0: Brilliant. Um, that's actually the second time that that book has been recommended, uh, and I just started reading it a couple days ago, so I'm really looking forward to, to jumping into the meat of it. Thank you for that recommendation. So, and uh, la- lastly, uh, where can people find you and learn more about your work? Well,
1: if people want to do that, they, the, the way to do it would be to look at the uh, Cascadia Law Group's website. Uh, we also have a consulting company that's called Cascadia Policy Solutions, separate website. Um, the Pacific Coast Collaborative has its own website. And then w- one of the things, a project we work on for the PCC involving ocean acidification was the creation of an international organization on that it is designed to work on the problem of ocean acidification. It is called the international Alliance to combat ocean acidification that has its own website. So those would be, those would be some places where you could get some more information if
0: you want it. Great. Excellent. Well, Jay, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fascinating uh, and it's incredible to hear about all the things you've accomplished over your career. And I hope that, we can make you more optimistic as the younger generation. Uh, and, I, and I hope that over yeah the, the remainder of your career, you're able to accomplish many more exciting things and, and continue to lead the way.
1: Thank you, Daniel. And and what you're doing here with this podcast is really important. And thank you so much for doing it. It is getting the word out and getting people um, aware of the problem and the opportunities I just think it's fantastic, and thank you so much for doing that.
0: Thank you for listening to Episode 4 of Sustainability Matters Today. You can find links to the books and the organizations Jay mentioned in the show notes, which you can see on my website, sustainabilitymatters.today. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other SMT episodes, I'd really appreciate if you could take the time to give a five-star review please subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. Talk to you soon.